Turn in your Bibles to James. We are back in James. It's been a long time. This was before Advent that we are in James, so I'm going to do a a review to help us to look over these um, past verses that we've gone through. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at James chapter 1, verses, um, I believe, 22 through 27, to just kind of wrap up chapter 1. But before we get there, let's look at this, uh, the preceding uh, verses, and do a short review of this. So first, we looked at the biblical response to trials. That's covered in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And that is the classic place that you go to when you're struggling, and you don't know why or how or what's going to happen. And my favorite verses here are in beginning in verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've gone there, just not knowing which way the wind's blowing. What is going on, Lord? And I need help. I need wisdom. And I love the last part where it says, he will give to all generously and without reproach. That without reproach is what I love is because it means basically he won't call you a fool for coming. He won't chide me for coming to him when I I don't know which way is up. I love that passage. But we saw a right attitude to trials in verses 2 through 4, wisdom for facing those trials in verses 5 through 8, and then endurance for the trials He provides endurance so that we can stand up through the trial and come out the other side. The second area that we looked at was a biblical response when trials turn into temptation. And that's seen in verses 13 through 18. And we see there the source of temptation in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And so we see that the source is definitely not from God when temptation comes into it. And there's a vast difference between trials and temptations. If we don't respond properly to the trials that come our way, it can evolve into a temptation. But that's not from God if that's what happens. And the process of temptation is seen in verses 14 through 15. And the end is devastating, but it says in verse 16 through 17, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And then he goes in to explain to us the greatest gift ever given is regeneration in verse 18. So, As you come through those testing periods, if you respond properly, you'll come out on the other side. If you are fallen into temptation then, that comes from your own lusts. That comes from within you. And if you don't catch it all the way to the end, it could spell death, which is separation. So be careful of allowing testings and trials to turn into temptations. At verse 19, James turned his attention to the teaching his hearers on how they are to receive the word of God, 
how they are to receive the word of God. And in his teaching, he promotes first the proper reception of the word of God, and then he also teaches the proper reaction to the word of God. So first, in verses, and that covers verse 19 all the way to the end of the chapter, but first he says, a proper reception of the word. I'm sorry, I just knocked over a trumpet that's in my pulpit. (laughs) Whose is this? It's... It's not, it's not a, a cello. Man, tell you, excuse me. <sighs> okay, so we're talking about the proper reception of the word. There needs to be an attitude of receiving the word of God. Every Sunday I get up here and I preach, and I pray that you will receive the word of God as you ought to receive it. We must understand that James says that his readers are aware of their new birth. You who are believers, you who have experienced regeneration, you understand that you have new life in him. But James wanted them, and I want us, to realize that it doesn't stop there. Their knowledge of the new birth through the word must lead to a new life directed by the word. How many times have we heard of people that just, they go back to when they were saved. I remember Billy Graham. He was here and, you know, and they're just, they look back to that one moment in time when they walked the aisle or they raised a hand or maybe they prayed a sinner's prayer. That is all fine and good. (laughs) But has he done anything in your life since then? And see, that's what James did not want them to put all their confidence in, just the fact that they were actually uh, regenerate, and, that, and that's good, and that's, but that's just the beginning. You see, there's triple duty commanded here, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The po- uh, proper way to receive God's word is to be quick to hear, and slow to answer, and definitely slow to anger. And then he says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word and plant it, which is able to save your souls. Therefore, because anger does not bring about the righteousness of God, remember that when you're in a dispute with whomever. Anger will never bring about the righteousness of God. And because anger prevents the word of God to affect its transforming power in the life, instead of being angry, James says, receive the word of God like this. And he tells us three roadblocks that will prevent us from doing that. The first is not putting aside all filthiness, embracing some type of moral corruption. The idea here is to strip it off like a garment that's dirty and throw it away. Putting aside all filthiness, verse 21. And then in verse 21 again, it says, and all that remains of wickedness, the evil that is so prevalent within us. That's a roadblock that prevents spiritual growth in the possession of an attitude of mind that intends to hurt others. That's what the the wickedness that remains. It's malice or ill will towards others. The whole idea is to strip away whatever it is that impairs the hearing and proper reception of the word of God. And those two things will, that filthiness or that wickedness that we allow to remain. Some, some of us 
need to go back to school and learn how to forgive. Forgiving is releasing the one that has harmed us. It's taking our arms and hands off of them and leaving them to God and forgiving them. That will prevent us from hearing and allowing the word of God, receiving it properly so that it transforms us. And finally, he, he ends, at the, the third roadblock is, is pride. He says, in humility receive the word. Because it's that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as all good. And therefore, without dispute or resistance. Genuine faith is not passive, folks. It's not passive. It's not a one-time thing that you did 20, 30 years ago. But it's active, it's intentional, and it's rooted in the bedrock truths of God's mercy and grace that have already been poured out upon us and into our heart and that enable us to press on from that point of regeneration. That word already implanted in us is able to save your souls. It's an ongoing process. Yes, it's justification is a one-time thing, but there is such a thing as sanctification where we're becoming more and more like Christ from glory to glory, day by day. And today, we're going to have a test of that. Is that actually happening in our lives? Because we're going to study the difference between doers and just hearers, right? There's a second aspect of the reception of God's word, and that's found in our text for this morning, James 1, 22 through 27. So let me read that for us to prepare our hearts. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. It's worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these new verses in James, they have so much to offer us, so much practical wisdom, so much that we can take away and put into our lives even today. And those of us that are living and walking in close fellowship with you, we can excel yet more and more. We're able to do that by the power and the enabling grace of God. So, Father, take these things today and, and teach us. Teach us afresh these things that we may have already heard about, that we may already know, and let us grow thereby, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, I feel like Peter, who wrote, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Because this section of James is probably the most well-known section. Everybody has heard sermons about being doers of the word and not hearers only. 
So I am reminding you of these truths, and, and hopefully there's some nuggets along the way that you can pick up and, and will be new to you. But honestly, this is ground that has been traveled many times by many preachers, and I'm sure most of you have heard these truths before. But like Peter, I'm ready to remind you that you need to be doers of the word, okay? You need to be doers of the word. And, and secondly, not just hearers of the word. And what does that mean? How can I just be a hearer of the word? And finally, I want to look at James' um, illustration of a simple application of what doers of the word do so we can see that and possibly take something from that. So be doers of the word, but prove yourselves doers of the word. The first word in verse 22 is but, but. And it's not an adversative. It's not a contrastive. You often hear me say, that but is a big but. It means there's a contrast here. Here it's not. It's adversative. That means that it's a continuation of what he was previously saying. It means something further must be said and that receiving the regenerating word implanted in us, which is able to save our souls, is only the beginning. There's more to it. You don't just stop there. Receiving the word is in the imperative. Be attentive. Listening to the word must be followed by active obedience. And many miss that point. They heard the gospel. They trusted Christ. But they forget that there's a process of sanctification that needs to take place, and it will take place until we die or until Jesus Christ returns and takes us to be with him. This is stated in verse 22 and illustrated in verses 23 through 25. Obedience is the common trait of the authentic believer, the true believer. There's a lot of posers in churches, a lot of posers. And we don't know. We can't see into the heart. None of us can. Many people with their mouth profess to be believers. But today, James is going to talk to us a little bit about how to actually gauge whether they truly are believers or not. John 8.31 says something very interesting. If you abide in the word, if you abide in the word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So the converse is true. If you don't abide in the word, which I would think every one of us wants to understand, what on earth does it mean to abide in the word, right? Because if you don't abide in the word, you are false disciples of mine, and you will not know the truth, and therefore that truth will not make you free. You are still in bondage. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, this is Jesus speaking, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is a big word. Prove yourselves, James says. It's one word in the original language. It's what linguists would call a present middle imperative. Okay? I went to seminary, so I'm going to throw some of it on you, okay? Present middle imperative. The tense of this verb is in the present tense, which means that it's an ongoing, continual state of things. It's not a once-for-all thing. This proving is an ongoing thing that we should be doing consistently in our lives. And the mood of the verb is in the imperative. What does that mean? 
It's a command. This isn't if you, if you want to do this or if you feel like doing this, prove yourselves. It's a command. We should be doing this. And so it could be translated into English like this. Continually be proving yourselves to be doers of the word. It's not a one-time thing experience, but rather an identifying trait of the life. True believers. James is describing and calling the believers to a lifestyle of obedience in this verse. I'll never forget my kids when they're they're young. Seven, eight, nine years old. And they would ask me, this, this is when I lived overseas in a tribe far, far away, <laughs> very primitive tribe, and, and they would ask me, how do you know somebody's a real believer? And they'd ask that because there were a lot of young people in the church at that time in Taliabo that were professing the name, but they weren't living like it. And they were already beginning to be discerning about true believers and those who only profess. They would profess to be believers, but then they would play soccer, and the things that came out of their mouth were shocking (laughs) as they were losing the game. Or whatever experience that my young children would see them in that called into question their profession, right? You see, being continually proving ourselves as doers of the word is an identifying trait of the Spirit of God in the life. It's a lifestyle of obedience. Doers, this is a noun, and it refers and it identifies a person, person, place, or thing, right? So it's a noun, and doer is the person that's being identified. And it's interesting because it shows the person in their entirety, all their emotions and their mind and their soul and their spirit are characterized by this trait. They are doers of the word. In short, it's James' designation or description of a genuine believer. We don't look at a man who takes up a hammer and some nails on a Saturday and maybe repairs his garage door. We don't call that guy a carpenter, would we? No, it's, it's the man who day in and day out carries his hammer and works with wood building and repairing things which need skill. That man is the carpenter. It's like that with Christians as well. The doer of the word. The people James is describing were not just those whose lives were dedicated to learning about the word of God. There are a lot of learners out there. But those who were also committed to obeying what the word teaches. They were being doers of the word day by day by day. Not perfectly, because nobody's perfect. All of us fail in many ways. And they, they were not merely hearers. That's the contrastive, right? Here's the, the contrast that doers, don't be merely hearers only, but be doers. The word actually referred at that time in the language, the Greek language, it referred to people that attended a, con- a concert or a speech and they passively just sat and listened. That's what that's meaning, the hearers. One commentator likened it to auditing a college class where you go and you sit and listen to the prof teach on a subject that you're interested in, but you have no skin in the game. You don't take the tests. 
you're not going to be graded, nor are you held accountable for what you have learned. But if you are a student and you're plugged in, then you definitely do take the tests. And you are responsible to regurgitate back what you have learned from the prof in a test, and you will be graded by that. So in verses 23 through 25, James says, don't just sit and listen to the word. The first part was be doers of the word. Now he goes into just sitting and listening to the word. What's that look like? Well, the comparison is clear. James is teaching that those who merely hear God's word but who aren't doers of it, he says, they're not believers. <laughs> He's as, as straightforward as John is. In First John, he is so strong. Black and white, the tests of life. James is giving us tests of life here too. In 1 John 2, 3, and 4, it says this, the one who does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoa, tamp it down. What about your tone, John? (laughs) Right? He's just telling it straight out as it is. In 1 John 3, 10, he says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Two camps. Anyone who does not practice, there's that perfect tense again, there's that that ongoing thing. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, (laughs) nor the one who does not love his brother. If you don't love your brother, you are not of God. Those are strong words. There are many people who claim a relationship with Christ with their mouths but they deny it by their behavior. James calls such people those who delude themselves. They delude themselves. The one who merely hears and is not characterized by doing the word of God is deceived, James says. And he's warning the church that not everyone who claims to be a believer is a true believer. And one way you can identify a poser is by observing their actions and their reaction to the word of God. Do they obey it, or do they just listen to it week in and week out, and week in and week out, and week in and week out? Some of you older, young people, teens, okay? You've been sitting in church for many years with your parents. Are you just nodding your head and waiting for the service to get over? Or are you actually getting something out of the service? Is it hitting your heart? Are you being challenged? If not, Don't profess the name of Christ. You're not a doer of the word. You're merely a listener. Now, it's good to listen, and I'm glad you're still coming with your parents. (laughs) Don't stop coming. But don't think that that makes you a believer. Because James is saying, if you only listen to the word and you don't apply it to your lives, you're not a true believer. And it's okay to be afraid. If I'm causing fear in your life right now, I'm grateful Because it makes you think, am I a believer? Every one of us should ask that question. Am I truly a believer? Because therein lies our confidence and our assurance. To delude. Well, before I go there, just let me backtrack a little bit because maybe I took you by surprise by that strong talk, but I'm just doing what Jesus did. Jesus said once, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine his audience? They probably all went to synagogue and temple. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But listen to this. But he who does, doers, he who does the will of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, they'll enter the kingdom of God. The doers. So I was just taking a picture out of Jesus' book. The lewd is a very interesting word. It's taken from a word that means to miscalculate from the the world of mathematics. How appropriate to this context. The one who merely hears or listens to the word without obedience to what he has heard has made a huge miscalculation if he thinks thereby he is a genuine believer. That's exactly what James is saying. You have miscalculated. Therefore, if a profession of faith is not evidenced in changed life, that's how you discover if you're a doer. Because you look at your life and you realize what I'm doing is not in line with God's word. I need to change this. That's called repentance, right? You turn around and you walk in a different direction than the direction that you're going. And true believers are repenting day by day. It's not just a one-time thing. You see, the true believer is being transformed from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.28, ever more into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, you get a little bit older, you start looking at your life, and you look back there. I'll tell you what, I am so glad I'm as old as I am now because those were tough years. When I first became a believer, I didn't know anything about the truth. And I really mark the time of becoming a believer with really starting to live. But I didn't stop there. When I think of the things that he's changed in my life, I am amazed. And I know that it had to be supernatural. And, and I'm not trying to break my arm patting my own back. I'm, I'm raising glory to God because it was God who's done it in my life. Can you trace changes in your life? Have you changed from year to year? We need to examine ourselves. We don't want to be caught up and be deluded in these things. We don't want to miscalculate something this important. And then in verses 23 through 25, he gives, James gives a simple picture to demonstrate his point. And this is just, this is great stuff. Let's look at 23 through 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, this is what he's like. He's like a guy that looks in the mirror and sees his natural face in the mirror. And once he's looked at himself, he goes away, but he immediately forgets what kind of person he was that he saw in that reflection. Now, we might think that's kind of funny, but you need to understand that forgetfulness is the operative word here that forgetfulness that is taken on by this person. It doesn't seem to matter what the man originally went to the mirror to see. In the end, he forgets what he actually saw, and so there is no follow-up behavior. So you go to the mirror, you look in the mirror, and you got this big black smudge here because you rubbed up against something you didn't realize it. And then you turn away from the mirror, and you just go to the meeting that you're going to go to. And people are going... Why? Because you forgot what you saw in the mirror. You go to the Word of God, and the Word of God points out a sin in your life that you need to repent from, and you turn from that Word of God, or you hear it in a sermon. You turn from the Word of God, and you walk away, and you forget about what you heard. 
That's what James is talking about. It's really quite simple, and I love 1 John, and I love James because they're so straightforward. <laughs> you, you have to be brain dead to not get what they're saying, okay? Just, they cut it just straight. He has immediately forgotten. Forgetfulness is the operative word. And James, his whole point in this passage is that he looks at his natural face in the mirror. Now, mirrors at that time weren't like mirrors that we have now. They would have died and gone to heaven with our mirrors, right? Their mirrors were basically pieces of metal that were polished. So you had bronze or silver, and if you were really rich, gold. And you just shine this and polish this piece, of, and then you would look at yourself. But in order to really see your reflection, you had to turn it this way and turn it that way. So you are kind of looking into the mirror. But as per the analogy, they had to turn the mirror every which way to get the reflection, but as to no avail in the end. Even after they saw themselves, they, they left, walked away, and forgot what they saw. But the one who looks intently... You notice that isn't in the first person that looks in the mirror. The one who looks intently at something else. This is a contrastive. That but is a contrastive. But the one who looks intently. And here it's a different person. And it's he who's looking into something differently. But his look is said to be intent. And this is even stronger word than which uh, literally means to bend over and examine. It's like what what we read about... um, Peter and Mary, when they looked into the tomb, it's that kind of look. They bent over and looked into the tomb. It's an intent looking. And what are they looking into? The perfect law of liberty. Perfect in the sense of what the word of God is in reality. It is inerrant, it is all-sufficient, and it is utterly comprehensive. There is no book like this. And the fact that we hold it in our hands is amazing. It is his self-revelation. He reveals himself and his will for us in this book. And we are left to just follow it. And he even gives us the spirit of God within us to enable us and strengthen us in the power of his might to do what he tells us to do. So it's kind of like saying, okay, I want you to build a house. And then he gives you all the money to build a house, and he provides the builders, and he says, just enjoy it. God is good. The perfect law of liberty, it's perfect in that there are no mistakes in it, and it's authoritative. What it says is binding upon us to perform, but not binding in a sense of slavery because it brings liberty, doesn't it? It says it's the perfect law of liberty not slavery. John 8, 31 through 32 teaches that whoever abides in his word will know the truth and the truth will make them free. In verses 34 through 36 of that same chapter in John, chapter 8, sin is called slavery, but the son is able to make us free. And there is liberty in the commands of God. John 5, 3, a phenomenal verse. The commands of God are not burdensome. If your Christianity, you feel like you're burdened to have to just obey God, you feel it's restrictive, you have the total wrong understanding of the Word of God, and that's a wrong response to the Word of God. If it says that His commands are not burdensome, 
then there must be something wrong with us because his commands aren't burdensome. We have misunderstood the character and nature of God. So study who he is in the scriptures. And then it's even better than that because he says, those who abide by it are blessed in whatever they do. It's not only that it's not burdensome, the things that he tells us to do, it's that we are happy, we are blessed in doing the things that he tells us to do. It's a joyful experience. That's a fruit of the Spirit. When we're walking close with God, saying yes to God and no to ourselves, we are walking under the control of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, fruit of the Spirit, one of them is joy, right? And it's a joyful thing. That's why Christians should be joyful. That's why we sing, because we love our Lord and all that he's done for us. Being doers, not merely hearers, and here's what they do. Here's a simple application, verses 26 and 27. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, I could have preached four sermons just on that alone. And I'm not. I'm going on, okay? If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. There it is, deceived, deluded, a poser. He's saying something, but he's not doing what he's talking about. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. And he tells us what it is. Visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Pure and undefiled in the sight of our God and Father, the real deal, the honest, genuine person who is a believer is first of all pure. That is not tainted with moral pollution. And oh my Lord, do we have moral pollution all around us. The motives are in sync with God and his will. In the sight of our God and Father. Undefiled is a negative term used to mean that the behavior has not been stained, excuse me, the behavior has been stained or affected by moral evil. Something has come in and affected those thoughts and that behavior, and thereby it becomes defiled and worthless. Worthless is a zero with the rim knocked off. No value. It's vain, vanity. But he tells us what doers of the word do. Now, this is just one instance, but there's value in it, and you'll see that in a moment. He says, visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself unspotted, unstained by the world. Well, visiting orphans and widows in their distress means you help those who cannot help themselves, and guess what? They don't pay you back either. There's no payback. It's representative of two of the most needy classes in ancient society. They're rightly viewed as claiming the believer's sympathetic action. These two groups are often paired in the Old Testament to signify the helpless. And whether an orphan or a widow, both were without their providers. They were without protectors. Think abortion. Think of the sex trade. Think of child pornography. It's alive and well all around us in this world. 
Their need was intensely real, for they were prey for the unscrupulous dregs that capitalized on their unprotected and destitute situation. A modern-day example, as I said, is abortion. Children on the street in many nations never forget visiting Brazil and being told by someone, a lot of street urchins, especially in certain areas, Sao Paulo, some of the other ones, somebody told me that every so often the police gather these children up in trucks and take them up into the mountains and shoot them. I'm telling you the truth, people. You know, our, our country is getting bad, but we're not there yet. Children, they're prey for such people. And you're to visit them. And this, this word visit doesn't mean to just drop by for a quick chat. The visit is with the intention of caring and supplying for the needs of the one that you're visiting. It reminds me of the Good Samaritan. The guy didn't just put a Band-Aid on a fellow. He took him to an inn. And then he told the innkeeper to do whatever he needed to do. He put ointment on him. And he took care of him. And he left money with the innkeeper and said, just take care of him, whatever he needs. And if there's anything more, when I return, I'll take care of that too. There's a relationship between the person giving aid and the needy one. There's, there's engagement with these people. To care for those who cannot help or care for themselves is a very clear example of a proper reaction to the word of God. Now, he's just giving a very practical illustration of how they would apply it in their day and age. Okay, We can take it over and think of ways we can apply it in ours. We can observe three ways in which the doer proves his faith is genuine. And remember that proving is continuously proving, okay? It's in relation to himself. He applies a word without self-deception. He's not deluded. That's one. Number two, in relation to others, he applies the word selflessly rather than selfishly. And finally, let's look at the doer's behavior in relationship to the world as he applies the word without compromise. Three ways, to himself, to others, and to the word itself. The doers keep themselves unstained by the world. Contextually, this last phrase intimately linked with the previous one. In the Greek, there's no conjunction and. So it goes right along with it. It's in a sense, while we are ministering to the world and those in deep need, we must guard ourselves from being corrupted, contaminated, or stained by that very world that we've entered into to help others. What on earth does that mean? Well, you keep oneself. To keep means there must be an intentional guarding over our personal lives. I'll never forget, I'm a missionary, so... I'm trained in cross-cultural communication and living, and we actually did something that many people would say is anathema. We contextualized, you know, contextualization. The reason that's got such a bad rap in today's Christian world is because people in the United States took that word and gave it all new meaning. And one pastor used to encourage his people to go where the sinners are, like Jesus did. So he said, to contextualize the gospel, you need to go into the bars where people are and you need to relate to them where they are and preach the gospel to them. The problem is, many of those people that obeyed that guy didn't have the stamina 
And it should have never gone into a bar because many of them fell into alcoholism because of it or drug abuse or engagement in sex. I remember there was a big movement to go over to Amsterdam and minister to the women in the red light district. Are you kidding me? How many have the stamina to go into an environment like that and not be stained by the world? So you need to guard yourself that while you minister to the needy within the context of the world, you do not get caught up in the things of the world. Now, it says keep yourselves, but I want to tell you something that even comes before that, and it's why we keep ourselves and how we're able to keep ourselves, because God keeps us first. God keeps us first. In 1 Peter 3, 3 through 5, it reads this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's kind of like the first part. We have been regenerate. That word received and planted in our hearts regenerated us, and so we're regenerate. And we are to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected, kept, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed, in the last time. God keeps us. John 10, 28. He gives us eternal life, and we will never perish, because he says, no one who is able, no one is able to even snatch us out of his hand. We are kept by God. John 17, 15. Jesus prayed to the Father that he would keep us that have believed in him from the evil one. God keeps us. And then This marvelous, marvelous verse in Psalm 121. He who keeps you will not slumber. I love that. He will not slumber. But it goes on. The Lord is your keeper. And he doesn't sleep. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. From this time forth and forever. God keeps us, yet we're commanded to keep ourselves. It's kind of like that verse in Philippians that we studied, right? Uh, We're to do the work, but it's in him working to do that work within us. We are to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Now, it's in the calm confidence that we are kept by the power of God that we intentionally keep ourselves unstained by the world. 1 Timothy 5.22, keep yourself free from sin, it says. James is speaking once again to the intentionality of the Christian life. Here it pertains to our relationship to the world. Unstained. To be stained means to not be pure anymore, to be blemished. It means to have taken on pollution and corruption that is in the world. There are two words for the world, real quickly, okay? Eon, which is referring more to time than space, and it's often translated age, but the other one is cosmos, and that's the one used here. And the cosmos, is, it's actually under the judgment of God, according to Romans 6.20, the cosmos. The cosmos is actually ruled by falling, fallen angelic beings in Ephesians 2.2, and the entire system is corrupt, 
And those living under its power are also corrupt and under the judgment of God. They abide under the wrath of God. These are all those who are unregenerate, living within the cosmos. You see, we are in the world as believers, as regenerate, but we're not of the world anymore. We've been delivered out of it. Colossians says we've been removed from one kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light of his son. So when James tells us to keep ourselves unstained by the world, he's referring to the world system, totally alienated from God, opposed to to him at every level, all of his ways, and at war with him. It's characterized by hostility toward God on all levels. I'll tell you what, I, I don't know, and maybe you can help me if you're younger. Does the world seem like it's getting really evil? Or is that just that I'm getting older? And I've been in it long. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, it just seems like, man, it's just rank. It's horrible. It's terribly corrupt. I see people on TV and they just bald face lie right to your face. You know they're lying. They know they're lying. I'm sorry. I don't remember seeing that. Maybe I was blinded to it. But wow. I like Francis Schaeffer's description of the world as being dominated by two driving forces. And this is something we need to protect ourselves from as regenerate people. He says the two forces that, are, that, that drive the cosmos are personal peace and affluence. Now, he has directed that statement directly to uh, the Western world of the United States, North America, and uh, Western Europe. But personal peace means the desire to just be let alone Not to be troubled by the troubles of other people, whether across the world or across the city. To live one's life with minimal possibility of being personally disturbed. Personal peace. It's kind of like the goal in those who live within the cosmos. And the other is affluence. And that is described as overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity. The itch for more always needing more, a life made up of things, things, and more things. Success judged by the ever higher level of material abundance. Now, I don't believe that I'm given to that affluence part, wanting things, things, and more things, but I can say that the culture that I came back to after 20 years living away from it does have its impact on us. I cannot believe how much junk we have in my home. I have a fairly large home, and it's just, we got to look for places for the junk. And we fight against stuff, you know? But it's just like, where does it all come from, eh? We need to be careful. We need to watch ourselves so that we don't get gobbled up by it. D. Edmund Hebert, one of my favorite commentators, said this, The world is not the material creation all around us, but rather the mass of unredeemed humanity as an egocentric world system that is hostile to God. It is a mighty flood of thoughts and feelings and principles of action and and conventional prejudices, dislikes, and attachments which have been gathering around human life for ages, impregnating it, impelling it, and molding it, and degrading it. Its central aim is self-enjoyment and self-aggrandizement in disregard of or in open hostility, 
uh, hostility toward God. You can see why I love Hebert. <laughs> He's kind of like a Spurgeon guy. He really knows how to put words together. It is central, the central aim is self-enjoyment and self-aggrandizement in disregard or in open hostility towards God. That's the world that we keep ourselves unstained from. So my prayer is that God would grant us the pursuance of these four things. Number one, be doers of the word of God, not merely hearers. Number two, that we would not forget the things that we hear and that we read in the word of God. Number three, but that we would diligently apply it to our personal lives and thereby experience transformation from glory to glory. And fourthly, and finally, that his enabling grace would aid us to keep ourselves unstained by the world. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to the close of this message today, we thank you for James, the half-brother of Jesus, who at one time did not believe that Jesus was Lord, but did convert and became a pillar in the church that is at, was at Jerusalem. And he left us such a powerful, powerful book, so practical and helpful to us. And I pray, God, that your word has burrowed down into the hearts of these dear people at Beacon of Hope today, those listening and watching online, but that it would do more than just educate them and, and change their thinking, but, Father, that it would bring about a proper reaction to your word, and that is application, and that they might continually prove themselves to be doers of the word by applying it to their lives. And then, Lord, that you might bless each and every one of us who commit to do that as you promise that you will. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.